Coming up on this week's episode of The Insight, the Intelligence Fusion team are discussing the impacts of climate change, in particular the role it plays in both food and water security across the world. We also look at the impact on politics, the economy and businesses. Keep watching to find out more. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Insight, an intelligence fusion podcast. If you're not already signed up to be notified of new content, don't forget to hit the subscribe button now. I'm Laura Brown from Intelligence Fusion and this week I'm joined by our senior regional analyst team. We have Max Taylor, who leads our coverage in Asia and the Middle East. We've got Viraj Patney, who oversees our reporting in Africa. And Vincent Febrier, senior regional analyst for the Americas. So this week, we're taking a closer look at the impact of climate change. In particular, we're looking at food security and water security, as well as the political and economic consequences across each region. Now, before we begin, Max, I think you almost want to kind of add a little bit of a disclaimer in at this point. Uh, Yeah, thanks, Laura. So basically, we found that whilst we were researching for this podcast, that a lot of the issues weren't strictly caused by climate change, but we found that climate change has made them significantly worse or has made the impacts of these issues significantly worse. So issues such as water security, for example, yes, these issues have been going on for quite a long time, but they are being made worse by the rapid increase in in, in, uh, climate change, uh, rapid growth of climate change. So we've broken down the the general theme of this week's podcast into a few sections. So we've broken down into water security, food security, and political and economic impacts of climate change. And generally, we understand food security and water security as uh, access to food, sustainability of uh, food sources, as well as reliability of of, uh, access to food. So we'll start today with water security. And I know, Vincent, you had quite a lot to say about this earlier, so I'll let you start. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think, like you said, uh, so water security, and you've mentioned it as well for food security, is kind of a reliable availability uh, of an acceptable quantity and quality uh, of water for health, for livelihoods, uh, for production. Um, coupled with an acceptable level of water-related risk. Um, so I kind of want to split uh, my section, at least for, for the Americas, in, in um, two. Uh, with the first is access to water. And then later on, I'll talk about Venezuela and uh, water shortages as it relates to kind of energy infrastructure. Uh, so in regards to um, access to water, uh, the case study I, I kind of want to point out to is uh, Lima uh, in Peru. Uh, So Peru has millions of people in the Lima metropolitan region uh, who don't have access to clean water. Uh, And often that uh, impacts poor communities uh, the most as they'll have to truck in water uh, to their own, which is often more expensive than those communities who have uh, piped water uh, directly. Um, So this access is made worse by growing urbanization. Uh, which puts a forever strain on the water supply, with Lima only having three rivers uh, supplying uh, the city. Uh, And where climate change comes in is that climate models um, are kind of unable to predict the future precipitation uh, in the Andes, uh, which uh, is where the water comes through, through melting glaciers, um, and where uh, both rising temperatures and melting glaciers, as well as decreased rainfall, um, doesn't bode well for the future of kind of uh, water supply for uh, the Lima metropolitan region. Um, so it'll put further strain on poor communities who already uh, don't have access through poor infrastructure or for, through lack of planning. 
Um, so inability to access clean wa drinking water can and has led to protests, uh, which in turn leads to road blockages, uh, potential clashes with police, uh, which impacts not only the logistics sector, um, but also uh, the public utilities sector um, who are attempting to kind of bring that access uh, to countries. Uh, we've also seen this type of unrest in Venezuela, uh, where a lack of potable water to neighborhoods and communities uh, has been present for in some for, for months or for days. For others, it's been years since they've had uh, clean drinking water piped in directly to their neighborhoods. And so similar to them, poor communities are more affected uh, as they have to truck in water uh, with shipments uh, being unpredictable at the moment. Uh, so Venezuela is also an interesting case study uh, in that it relies uh, on hydroelectric power for uh, the majority of its uh, electricity production. Um, and clim climate has played a significant impact on, on this issue in the last decade. Uh, so between 2013 and 2016, um, experts said that the country received between 50 and 65% uh, below average rainfall, uh, which led to things such as electricity rationing, uh, the government pushing for two-day work weeks, closure of schools on certain days, and cuts to agricultural output. Um, in regards to electricity, uh, just recently in May, uh, the state electrical company reported that three hydroelectric plants were out of service in the Andean region of the country uh, because the water levels in the dams uh, were below uh, the minimum needed uh, for the, those hydroelectric dams to operate safely. Uh, however, there's some dams that have continued to operate uh, with le water levels below um, the minimum threshold, uh, but that's at risk of putting uh, the turbines um, in danger of, uh, of breaking down. Uh, which would be an even greater problem then. Uh, so the lack of uh, electricity um, that, that we've seen in the country not only impacts businesses, but also hospitals, uh, ATM machines at banks who rely on being powered for people to withdraw their, their cash, uh, but also other sectors, and ultimately has led to uh, significant public discontent uh, across the country um, over failing public services. Uh, the lack of inconsistency in the power supply has also led to uh, significant unrest, uh, but which has been um, made worse by also a lack of food uh, and a lack of domestic gas. Uh, the breakdown, uh, and I think you'll probably mention it later on in terms of geopolitical um, issues between countries, has also led to uh, some neighboring communities in Brazil and Colombia uh, where power is supplied from Venezuela to also lack electricity. Uh, so it's showcasing the kind of broad impact of um, of the problem. Um, but it's also important to, like you said, climate change is not just the sole issue. So, uh, the, the problems in Venezuela that we've seen with dams and the lack of electricity stems from, uh, corruption within the construction, uh, within, uh, the state agencies, uh, from the time of Hugo Chavez to now president Maduro. Um, and it's led to kind of political tension between uh, the government of Venezuela, but also, uh, between them and the U.S. because President Maduro has uh, blamed the United States for sabotaging their dams um, and impacting their their security and infrastructure. I'm glad you brought up dams, actually, because I found them to be such an important part of water security as a, as a sub-theme. Because as a few of your examples there have already hi highlighted, dams are often quite international. So the, the, the waterways that these dams are built on often come from other countries as well. And this means that the construction of a dam doesn't just affect the, uh, the, whichever country is building the dam. It's got a significant impact on other countries downstream, which, as you just said, lends a more political uh, atmosphere to the, to the construction of dams. It's not simply just a construction project. It's a political project as well. 
and that makes the and that inevitably lead to at times disagreements. And whilst these disagreements rarely lead to uh, on that rarely solely lead to international conflict, they do still. It's just another element in international relations that's really important to take place. And I think one thing I found with dams in particular is they're often internally very highly politicized. So they're often portrayed as this uh, a construction project which look uh, which a government will try and portray as a way of showing how successful this government is. And they'll attach quite a lot of uh, of, uh, of symbolic uh, value to it because they're simply saying, look, by constructing this dam, we're building ourselves out of being a poor country to a richer country. So going back to what we said earlier about this being an international equation, the issue is if you, if a country downstream starts to take an issue with the construction of this dam and the government that's constructing the dam has made this a political symbolic statement, both have backed themselves into a corner here because they can't then go back on building the dam if they've made it, try, if they've tried to make it seem like a political statement. So yeah, dams are an incredibly important theme within water security. And as we said, you know, the, the issue of dams isn't solely related to climate change. There's other factors in it as well, but climate change is making access to water more important. So therefore the construction of dams is only going to become more important as time goes on. Is there a significant kind of example from your region in, in that regard? Yeah, so I've, uh, I think uh, one of the better examples I found actually was in the Middle East region, and that's in the su- southern Anatolia, southern southeastern Anatolian project, which is a Turkish project which aims to construct 22 dams, mostly in southeast Turkey. And as I was just saying about the way that this is politicized, as as one can expect, the Turkish government has politicized this somewhat, in that they see this as a way of developing the southeast of Turkey, which is sign- economically uh, significantly poorer than the rest of Turkey. Also, the southeast hosts a uh, quite a uh, active PKK insurgency, which is a Kurdish militant group in the area. So the Turkish government sees this not only as a political uh, tool, but also as a social development tool to combat an insurgency, which is actually something what we touched on last week. So they can't. So as a result, this is symbolic. Symbolically speaking, this is a very important project for the Turkish government and one that they are very intent to continue. But it's caused major problems downstream in Iraq particularly in southern Iraq, where much of Iraq's agriculture comes from. As the water, f- uh, the water flows down the Tigris and uh, the Euphrates have been significantly cut off by the damming projects further upstream, this has led to other issues that one would expect as, as agricultural land starts to dry up due to reduced water supplies. And these, in, in the case of Iraq, this has included uh, internal displacement, so a lot of urbanization, as Vincent spoke about in the Americas, so a lot of people coming from rural areas now moving to urban areas, which brings in social problems within the urban areas itself. So, for example, uh, social uh, crime-related problems, overcrowding and housing, as well as workers that would typically have been working in agricultural land are no longer working in agricultural land. So not only are more people moving to urban areas, the number of people working in agricultural land is also reducing. Also, we've seen in Iraq, in a previous instance, actual clashes with, with often using firearms, particularly in southern Iraq, between uh, tribal groups, family groups, or just other, any other groups, over the use of, of, of farmland. And normally this is related to finding fertile farmland that's well-drained, so the very prime real estate in southern Iraq. So this creates a really good example. And to throw in a bit more of a political element at a bit more of a strategic level, Iran has also been damming tributaries leading into uh, uh, leading into the Tigris River through Iraq. And whilst this hasn't had the same impact as Iranian dams, what this does is it brings in a very difficult political element to it. Because with the USA being very involved in Iraq, as, as we all know, and the USA and Iran being at polar opposite ends of uh, op- op- opposing each other at every turn, any political agreements between Iran and Iraq involving the USA would be very difficult and they're just made more complicated by the fact that 
another layer has been added in by the involvement of so many different countries and different political allegiances. But generally, I've, I've found in the Middle East, water security has mostly come down through dams and damming projects. And we're seeing it at the moment as well with, um, with China. The Three Gorges Dam has come under significant pressure, uh, uh, significant pressure due to ongoing flooding in China, <clears throat> which has killed, as of today, 141 people. So it's, again, a major damming project, very highly politicized by the Chinese government, sold as a way of preventing flooding. It's now coming under criticism because of the fact that, well, the Three Gorges Dam in particular is seen as not being a successful damming project. So again, dams consistently prove that they aren't simple construction projects, they're political projects as well. So I think uh, the issues of water security and food security, I think they're both sort of interrelated. You know, so with in relation to water security in Africa, uh, like Vincent mentioned, uh, changing weather patterns have led to erratic uh, precipitation patterns. And this is a threat to water supply. So in Southern Africa, which is a you know a good example here, uh, I think it has experienced severe droughts in recent years. And it's in fact the most severe in, in decades. So uh, this was the case in Cape Town in 2018, where the city almost ran out of water uh, because dam levels were so low. Uh, and there's also, um, like Vincent mentioned, uh, implications for power generation as well. So in Zambia and Zimbabwe, uh, you know, where low dam levels have contributed to long periods of load shedding. Uh, and in Zimbabwe, it has contributed to worsening economic conditions, you know, because of, uh, I mean, they have their own political sort of crisis going on there, but there's also the commercial aspect, you know, there's a lot of commercial disruption that this is causing. And uh, the food security that I mentioned, uh, you know, significant proportion of uh, the population in Africa, they practice subsistence agriculture. And over 20% of GDP in sub-Saharan Africa uh, comes from uh, the agricultural sector. So, uh, you know, with droughts, erratic rainfalls and uh, rising temperatures and sh shorter growing seasons, uh, this is leading to a drop in agricultural output uh, with subsequent cause, uh, you know, with this, this sort of uh, impacts on food security. And uh, with regards to sea level rise as well, uh, I think Egypt is a good case study of this uh, with the Nile Delta region. Uh, so what, this is a region where about 20 million people live. And uh, it's also a region where 63% of highly productive land uh, in the country is located. So if the sea level was to rise by one meter, then about a third of this low altitude region uh, will be underwater. And uh, there are also other factors that you know exacerbate, like you mentioned right in the beginning, uh, you know the effects of climate change, uh, such as population growth and geopolitical tension between uh, Egypt and Ethiopia over the filling of the Ethiopian dam. Uh, Egypt is a downstream country, uh, so it's downstream of the River Nile, and uh, it relies on the river as its uh, main source of fresh water. Uh, I think it's about ninety percent. Uh, and there is tension over the pace, you know, currently in, the, in recent weeks, uh, over the pace of the filling of the dam. Uh, too quick, and there will be uh, water shortages in Egypt. And uh, I think, again, the locust invasion is linked to climate change here as well. So according to the Food and Agricultural Organization, uh, you know, they have warned that the Horn of Africa is facing uh, the worst infestations of desert locusts in 25 years. For Kenya, at 70 years, uh, there are about 42 million people in severe acu acute 
food insecurity in three regions affected by the crisis. Uh, and, uh, you know, the locust invasion, uh, these have been linked to several cyclones in the Arabian Peninsula. So these cyclones have caused uh, optimal breeding grounds for locusts. Uh, some experts have also warned that uh, because of rising sea temperatures, uh, we will see cyclones uh, with increasing regularity and with this more uh, desert locust outbreaks in the future. Um, again, I think with the, you know, the effects of global climate, you know, changes in global climate patterns, we're seeing an increase in global temperatures. So according to the UN, a majority of the data sets uh, in 2019 uh, points 2019 to be the second warmest year on record. Um, and because of concentrations of carbon dioxide being so high, uh, you know, along with methane and nitrous oxide, uh, we're seeing uh, oceans sort of uh, absorbing a lot of this heat as well. Uh, so we're seeing sea ice shrinking, we're seeing oceans rising, we're seeing uh, oceans also absorbing CO2, which is changing, uh, you know, that sort of changes their pH levels. Uh, so this is also affecting uh, fish stocks. So, you know, in this case, increasing ocean temperatures and Ocean acidification will lead to changes in marine populations, uh, ecosystem structure, and biodiversity as well. So with ocean acidification, there are implications for the fishing industry. Uh, artisanal fishing and tourism, you know, are critical means of livelihood for many communities in Africa. And uh, they will be worst affected as the fish population decreases. Uh, then there's also the case of, you know, an increase in flash flooding as well. So... Uh, more frequent flooding has also affected coastal systems in that because uh, of the flood runoff uh, onto the sea. This is sort of reducing the sea uh, salinity. And this changes the migratory patterns of fish who are forced to you know, move further uh, offshore. Well, I think that that point you made about kind of uh, the impacts to fishing industry um, is also quite important, I, I suppose, in my region uh, in regards to the Caribbean uh, as it takes away from uh, income from fishing uh, communities. Uh, and we've seen uh, that impact um, leading to increased piracy. So uh, probably in your region when uh, with Somalia uh, a few years back now uh, that we saw increased in, in, in piracy there, uh, but also off the coast of Venezuela with uh, not only because of a poor economy, uh, because of the fishing industry collapsed a few years back, uh, it's also led to increased uh, incidence of piracy uh, off um the state of Enzo Ategi, um, but also kind of between uh, the Gulf of Paria, between uh, Venezuela and Trinidad and Tobago, uh, where we've seen fishermen being kidnapped. Um, so it's kind of uh, fishing communities impacted by uh, low stocks of, uh, of fish uh, have to find new ways to uh, supplement their income. Um, so yeah, so Max, in your region, kind of has food security uh, been been impacted in that regard? Yeah, so food security, I find, in Asia is a massive region, obviously, and as a result, covers a huge amount of different ecosystems. But I would say if I had to single out one area that's become particularly under threat as a result of temperature rise, as a result of climate change, it's probably be Southeast Asia. And the reason being, um, Southeast Asia is already considered to be at a temperature above what's recommended for growing crops for the optimum crop production. So even a small increase in temperature would adversely affect the Southeast Asian region and agriculture in this country, in this region. Whereas richer countries in Asia perhaps can afford to negate this by importing crops or simply using uh, or using early technologies relating to genetically modified crops, which 
can negate some of the, the issues relating to food availability. But Southeast Asia at the moment is also heavily reliant on water intensive crops such as rice. So while some crops would, would benefit actually from a change in, in temperatures such as sorghum, the, the most, most crops that, are, that form the staple of our diet such as rice and wheat are going to struggle significantly without, uh, without access to water or with higher temperatures. So a lot of people are quick to point out that certain crops will thrive, but I think it is important to remember which crops won't thrive and those crops that, which won't are generally the ones that form staple foods. So something I've wanted to ask both of you, actually, I think this applies to both re- to all regions, is I've noticed, uh, particularly in the Middle East, a lot of, we've spoken now about both water and food security. I've noticed these shortages have led to protests and often directly led to protests. And I've noticed inconsistency where sometimes these protests have deliberately, um, they protest outside private companies, if private companies are involved in the provision of water and food or whatever it may be. And sometimes these have actually manifested themselves into broader anti-government protests. And I was wondering in your own respective regions, have there been any examples of where these protests have started off as low level, often just outside company headquarters protests to more anti-government protests? So... I think, you know, climate change is something that's uh, sort of a slow burning uh, impact. You know, it's not like terrorism where Mm. over a couple of minutes or an hour, it's like over decades. So I think I haven't seen uh, many protests linked to climate change, but uh, I'd rather, you know, it's it's the political and economic sort of um, impact uh, of climate change in some way, how climate change sort of interacts with the, you know, politics and economic and, you know, society as well. So... With the political and economic impact, uh, you know, the, the effects of climate change will lead to worsening sort of living conditions. Uh, you know, I think it's worth mentioning that water and food insecurity will lead to increases in migration to, you know, you know, climate refugees, for example. Well, can I cut in there? Because I think, like you wanted, uh, in regards to migration, I think that, that fits in well with kind of uh, the Americas, uh, with what we've been seeing with migrant caravans coming in from uh, the dry corridor of Central America towards towards the U.S., uh, and that's primarily uh, when we listen to politicians discuss it. Uh, we talk about migrants fleeing from crime uh, or and issues such as that, uh, but rarely talk about kind of uh, the impact that climate change has had that's pushed for uh, migrants towards um, the United States. And so in the dry corridor of Central America, which is Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, and Nicaragua, uh, 2019, um, and you mentioned 2019 being a high year, uh, in your region, uh, in 2019, it was the fifth straight year of drought um, in Central American corridor, uh, which impacted the food security of 2.2 million people. Uh, and it saw, uh, due to droughts in Honduras, uh, it saw 72% of corn and 75% of beans lost in the southern section of the country. Uh, and it also impacted coffee growers. Um, and in, whether in Honduras or El Salvador or Guatemala, uh, and part of the reason um, the drought in 2019 um, was so severe was that uh, the region wasn't hit by a single named uh, tropical cyclone from either the Atlantic or Pacific sides. Um, and when the rains did come uh, and they were late and they were smaller uh, than expected. Um, and when it, if they were strong rains, uh, because it was so dry, it led to flooding rather than the soil absorbing the water. Uh, and that creates its own set of uh, challenges uh, for communities there. Uh, but um, you mentioned the UN, uh, the UN uh, World Food Program in 2018 uh, surveyed families um, in, in the dry corridor, and it showed that 8% planned to migrate due to lack of food. Um, so migration 
uh, might first be towards cities. So we talked about increased urbanization. Uh, but when they do that and there's no job opportunities or those cities um, feel the impact of increased and don't have the resources to accommodate that, uh, then that's when people decide to, to move on. Uh, and often in this region, it's towards the United States. Um, so in 2018, the World Bank report found that 1.42.1 million people in Central America and Mexico are likely to be displaced from their homes by 2050 uh, due to factors related to climate change. Uh, this number will go up uh, in the worst case scenario, uh, which we haven't hit yet. Uh, and it's also likely to be compounded by gang violence, corruption, and political upheaval, uh, which are kind of the main causes that people talk about when they talk about migration towards the United States. Um, migration also puts countries under pressure, in particular Mexico, which kind of is between the dry corridor and, and the United States. Um, and it puts them under pressure because uh, they're host to the caravans with many of those migrants staying in Mexico, but also because then relations between Mexico and the U.S., um, we see friction, as we've seen with President uh, Trump and President Lopez Obrador of Mexico, um, when the, the United States wanted Mexico to do more to stop these caravans from even crossing between Guatemala and Mexico. Um, and we've seen, uh, oftentimes, civil unrest uh, caused uh, at uh, border cities like Tijuana uh, by migrants who weren't allowed to pass and who were uh, lacking resources. Um, so uh, we, we can see that uh, we, ha we have to take in, in, in consideration climate change and its impacts in, in certain countries um, and their implications towards migration toward the United States. So I think when uh, the United States discusses how to solve problems such as migrants coming in, um, they have to not only address uh, the high levels of crime and corruption, but also uh, set aside uh, some money, if that's how, the way they want to handle it, towards addressing some of the root causes of uh, lack of food, uh, which has caused uh, millions to, to decide to leave their homes. So in relation to your question about water, you know, water shortages and how it links to anti-government sentiment, uh, I think we're more likely to see I think in general, you know, the coming years, we're more likely to see uh, protests linked to worsening living conditions. Um, but, you know, I think Mauritania uh, springs to mind, you know, as a country where, you know, recently there has been quite in in areas sort of uh, east of, uh, you know, the capital, there have been quite a, quite a lot of protests uh, linked to water shortages or poor water infrastructure. Uh, I think anti-government sentiment is not always easy to quantify uh, and whether it leads to, you know, a revolution or something like that. Um, but for now, um, there isn't any, you know, anti-government sentiment that I can think of. Then that brings us really nicely onto the uh, third section, which is essentially covering uh, politic, political, ec economic, and security-related issues, which are affiliated with climate change. And what we're talking about the uh, protests, I think, brings uh, me to a good case study, which is Iran, and Iran's seen significant water shortages throughout time. So it's, this isn't a, this isn't strictly related to climate change again, but as we said earlier, in Iran in particular, climate change is having is is causing water shortages in Iran to increase in in frequency, and also to be more more constant and more severe. So Iran, we see quite a lot of protests, almost on a daily basis, actually, often small protests in rural areas carried out by farmers who have water shortages or and who are normally reliant on trucks carrying water to be delivered out to their delivered out to their their villages and towns so the political aspect of this is that these protests have generally started to merge with anti-government protests and whilst there is differences like not all of these water security protests are anti-government they are rapidly becoming 
they are rapidly rapidly gaining a political dimension and as Varaj said as as time goes on there's going to be more quality of life related protests and water security is going to be particularly prevalent in a, in a cause of this another more secure uh, more conflict and security related aspect that i've noticed with iran is how vulnerable they are to uh, to their current water shortages and to outside interference so in the late 90s actually is a really good example and this was so this is quite some time ago before climate change has really accelerated to the rate we see now but in the late 90s even as early as then the Taliban militants shut off a sluice at the Kajaki Dam in Helmand province in Afghanistan and the the, the river that runs through this dam runs into Afghanistan into uh, eastern Iran and sources a huge amount of the Iranian farmland and from a security perspective this put Iran in a really very difficult position because such a small act the Kajaki Dam is a relatively small dam compared to the the the, the crisis it caused such a small act actually really significantly worsened an ongoing drought in Iran and it really highlights not just in Iran but in other countries as well how vulnerable countries are politically and security wise to such a small act in another country and Iran actually was at a point when they were the relations with the Taliban were already very weak and Iran was starting to deploy soldiers on the border so again the tensions eventually wound down as particularly after the US invasion however it just goes to prove how important things such as water security and dams can be at a political level. Yeah, so I think uh, South Sudan is a, a good example of how existing competition between communities over water and land is a driver of, of conflict and and how climate change is having a, you know, an amplifying you know, impact. So you know, studies by NGOs have shown that uh, conflicts in South Sudan have followed extreme weather such as droughts, while there are other factors that influence you know, violence and migratory patterns so you know we have to bear those in mind as well uh the sahel region is another region uh where we see uh, you know a similar dynamic so this is a region where uh, according to the un you know 80 percent of farmland is degraded and temperatures are expected to rise 1.5 times faster than the global average and uh, wet seasons are also shrinking you know given that a large uh, percentage of the population make a living through agriculture you know, this means that millions are, you know, exposed to the effects of climate change. And I think another, you know, I think vulnerability also, you know, is an important comp- component to think about here. So, uh, you know, those that do have a, you know, safety net, you know, by the state, uh, if, you know, if the state does intervene, uh, you know, to assist with, you know, income support, for example, uh, then it causes men to become disenfranchised, you know, providing, you know, non- non-state groups, how we discussed uh, in our last podcast with you know recruitment opportunities which is something that we are seeing in the Sahel region as well uh, while there are other drivers of conflict in the Sahel region you know climate change is certainly exposing the gaps uh, in governance and or poor you know or non-existent uh, climate change adaptation strategies and uh, I think that's another important component here because a lot of African countries are also in need of investment in climate change uh, adaptation strategies so a failure to make you know econ- economies, uh, industries, and communities more resilient uh, will expose vulnerabilities and people's livelihoods to the effects of climate change. Yeah, and I think in regards to uh, kind of climate change, its effects and, and, and politics uh, in, in the Americas, it's I would say less so uh, conflict uh, as Max mentioned, um, but I think it's more kind of the political relations between certain countries um, as well as the potential. Uh, for political change and and protest, um, so one a good one a good example of the 2019 Amazon forest fires, 
uh, which were between January and October 2019, when tens of thousands uh, of fires were reported across Brazil, Bolivia, Peru, Paraguay, and Colombia. And while the, uh, the cause of fires uh, were reported to be slash and burn approach to deforest deforesting land uh, for agriculture, mining, uh, ranching, and logging, um, as well as the longer dry season caused by climate change and global warming. Um, particularly important uh, is that the rainforest is uh, the largest terrestrial CO2 sink in the world. Um, and so the fires led to tension between um, the international community and President Bolsonaro, uh, who was accused of putting his pro-business policies forward at risk of environmental degradation, uh, including weakening environmental protections. Um, and at the time uh, of these fires, uh, the EU and the Mercosur region were negotiating a free trade agreement. And what what happened was that um, these fires kind of put this trade agreement on the line because some EU countries uh, were saying that they wouldn't ratify it if Brazil uh, didn't do more to protect the Amazon um, as kind of the world saw the Amazon as being kind of for the world, not just Brazil. And President Bolsonaro saw it more as kind of an economic opportunity uh, for, for his pro-business stance. Um, this also, this, during this period, there were also protests across the world regarding uh, regarding the fires and demanding uh, more action be taken against climate change uh, by world leaders. Um, and as I mentioned, climate change can also uh, be a catalyst for political change and protest. Um, and so I'd like uh, for this, it's more kind of, I would say, the US or, or Europe. Uh, and we've seen significant lobbying on behalf of environmental um, policies, uh, which leads to proposal like the Green New Deal uh, proposed by AOC and, and others in the in Congress in the United States. Um, but it also leads to protest action uh, directly impacting uh, uh, businesses. Um, so we saw the climate strike uh, of 2019 in September uh, and companies being targeted uh, if they're seen as, as some of the biggest polluters. Um, and that might just be a protest outside or it might be uh, action taken by Extinction Rebellion or Greenpeace, where it's more kind of direct action and vandalism to kind of stop operations uh, from taking place. Um, so kind of the political risks and climate change as a whole poses a significant uh, problem for for businesses. Um, so I think that kind of leads us to, I suppose, our next section, uh, which is kind of threats to businesses. Um, so ultimately kind of as a roundup, um, what, what would be the biggest threats to businesses in your region, Max? I think similar to what I was mentioning earlier with the question I asked you guys, I think it's businesses which provide these services, so whether it be water services or logistical services related to food and NGOs as well that are involved in the provision of food, I think you're going to see themselves increasingly under pressure and at times blamed for the shortages themselves. And sometimes this will be the case, sometimes it won't. So for example, in Lebanon, a lot of the water provision companies are state-owned. Uh, state owned. So the pro- so the protesters often gather outside these state-owned uh offices in, in major cities but the protests are generally anti, anti-government anti but in countries where provision of water is privatised we can expect to see these privatised companies essentially bearing the brunt of much of the blame for any wa- potential water shortages and I think the same goes for NGOs like a lot of the time NGOs do find themselves targeted anyway by uh, by attackers or, or even protests whatever it may be when providing aid, food, water, whatever it may be. So I think as climate change, as the rate of climate change increases and temperatures increase and the problems that we've talked about get worse and worse as time goes on, I think we can expect to see uh, NGOs and other aid delivery groups at the front end a bit more and at times I think directly targeted, whether it be protests or militarily, as a result, as they may be perceived as the ones at fault. Yeah, I think uh, different sectors of business will sort of 
uh, experience the different you know effects of climate change differently. So you know increased flash flooding, for example, you know that could impact uh, logistics. Uh, but not only that, I think small scale and large scale commercial activity as well. Uh, there have been protests, uh, you know, to demand more action to be taken against climate change. Uh, I think South Africa is a good example of that. But uh, it's nothing like what we've seen in Europe, you know, with Extinction Rebellion. Uh, I think we're more likely to see protests linked to, you know, deteriorating economic and living conditions, uh, which climate change is impacting. Yeah, and I, th- I agree with you. And I think I see similar flights in regards to uh, threats to businesses posed by uh, protests demanding action on climate change, uh, but also threats due to impacts of climate change. Um, so we've seen, as Max mentioned, logistics, um, industry being impacted by protest, uh, whether uh, it be as a result of water security, food security uh, issues. Um, we've also seen uh, looting and vandalism in the aftermath of disasters, which pose threats to businesses. Um, and the use of law enforcement officers to respond to some of these uh, disasters uh, can also create gaps for criminals to exploit, uh, whether it be for fraud or whether it be for uh, homicides or more criminal action uh, in that regard. Uh, I think one of a, a good example to showcase kind of a threat to businesses um, is of Hurricane Maria uh, in 2017, which impacted Puerto Rico. Uh, so the island is host to a number of pharmaceutical uh, manufacturing com- uh, facilities uh, with some drugs only produced in Puerto Rico. And so the threat posed by the hurricane not only threatened the country, but it threatened that, in- that industry, which, if it had been uh, severely impacted, would have had ripple effects across the world. Uh, so I think this example showcases kind of the necessity for businesses to have robust supply chains, uh, especially for uh, certain high-priority goods like pharmaceuticals. Um, and so if we think of today with COVID-19, if being in hurricane season at the moment, if a hurricane was to take out um, one of the largest manufacturing of pharmaceutical uh, in the world, areas in the world, um, what would that impact be for a COVID-19 response, which would have then have even uh, bigger implications? Um, so I think ultimately climate change, it's one of those issues that businesses need to be proactive on not only in regard to putting in place disaster recovery plans and mitigation strategies to safeguard their facilities, but also in regard to keeping up with a global and local sentiment on the issue, um, so as to be aware of any threats to their businesses, whether indirect or direct, uh, coming from protests or similar actions. Thank you very much, team, for this week's Insight. And as always, thank you to our viewers and listeners across all of our podcast channels. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please like and share it with your network. Drop us a comment. Let us know what your key takeaways were. Uh, Next time, we're discussing pipeline politics and the impact on the oil and gas sector. See you then.